At this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard the disciples speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, wherever we have gathered in your name. We trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. Please sit. A few weeks ago, I read an article, one of the thousands of articles that is shared online thousands of times. This particular article was entitled, What Each Side of the Reopening Discussion Needs to Understand About the Other Side. And the stated reason that the article was written was to combat the natural human tendency to immediately and internally translate the things we hear from the other side into the worst possible version of that thing. I mean, have you been on social media lately? I think that Twitter and Facebook should offer a default response, which is, come on, I didn't mean that. So you write something on social media, somebody responds, and then the service just automatically inserts, come on, I didn't mean that. I think it would be appropriate about 85% of the time. Someone, usually one of them, responds to something that you say, here's something that you say, and here's something totally different. In fact, something often the opposite of what you meant, something, an awful version of what you meant. This is not groundbreaking to observe that we live in divided times. And crises like these, the coronavirus crisis being only one of them, not to mention the racial unrest in our city and in others, These crises highlight the ways in which people are split apart. It's like we're all speaking different languages. It's been a while since I read to you from Sally Lloyd-Jones's Jesus Storybook Bible, so I'd like to read a brief section to you now from her retelling of the story of the Tower of Babel. This comes after the people have tried to make a name for themselves by building a tower to heaven. And after the Lord has come down and seen their pathetic attempts to show their ability to live on their own account without him, and God stops their plans. And here's how Lloyd-Jones writes it. One morning, they went to work as usual, but everything was different. Their words were all new and funny. You see, God had given each person a completely different language. Suddenly, no one understood what anyone else was saying. Someone would say, how do you do? And the other person thought they said, how ugly are you? It wasn't funny. You could be saying something nice like, such a lovely morning, and get a punch in the nose because they thought you said, hush up, you're boring. Does this sound familiar? Someone would say, I'm concerned about the future of our economy. And the other person thought they said, I don't care about sick people. 
You could be saying something nice, like, I'm worried that getting back together too soon will put more people at risk and get a punch in the nose because they thought you said freedom isn't important. We are living, and this pandemic response is only one example of this, we are living in a post-Babel world. Everyone's talking and everything's confused. And it's into this confusion, into this world divided up, not only into political parties, but into many tongues, tribes, and nations. It's into this world that the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. And I think that if we track for a second here this morning, if we track the Holy Spirit's work, we will find the whole story of Christianity, the whole story of God reconciling the world to himself in Christ and see how it is that our fractured world, speaking many different languages and seemingly always confused, can be reunited in Christ by proclaiming his deeds of power. But before we get to the actual events of Pentecost Day itself, the gathered disciples, the tongues as of fire and many languages, I want to go back for a moment. Let's begin our tracing of the Holy Spirit's work in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. This is Jesus talking. Jesus is still alive, but he's talking about the fact that he's going to have to go away. The disciples, of course, want him to stay, to lead them and to teach them. But Jesus has been trying to get through to them that the fact that he's going away is actually good news. That he's going to have to be given up to the authorities and crucified, but that there's a good thing coming. Here's what Jesus says. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now hear, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. It's a lot, admittedly, but what is it exactly that Jesus says the Holy Spirit is coming to do? When he comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit's first job is to convict the world of guilt, to be the jury before which we offer up our lives and to render a verdict. And that verdict is... Guilty. Jesus doesn't even seem to pay lip service here to the possibility of any other outcome, that anybody might be found innocent. He doesn't say that the Spirit will come to judge as if the outcome is in doubt. He says the Spirit will come to convict. He jumps straight to the end of the trial. This, of course, is the same Jesus who said, therefore you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He knows that a standard 
of perfection ensures that we are all guilty as charged. Every single one of us from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to render that verdict. This is the first thing we find the Spirit doing, showing us our guilt. That's stage one. And as usual for us, stage one is bad news. The announcement that we're guilty. But we're not finished tracing the work of the Holy Spirit yet. The Spirit himself is certainly not finished with us. Let's look now at Acts chapter 2. The the powerful release of the Holy Spirit into the world. Suddenly, we read, from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where the disciples were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them. And a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Something amazing is happening here, and it is good news. It has everything to do with the fractured state in which we find the world. It has everything to do with our living in a post-Babel world and our inability to understand each other. Remember, it's a huge festival in Jerusalem, and people are in town from everywhere in the known world. And this amazing thing is happening. Babel is being reversed. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? The crowd asks. How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then we get that whole list of nations, right? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, everyone in our own languages. We hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. The Spirit is here participating In the redemption of the world, God is at Pentecost redeeming the guilty verdict rendered at the Tower of Babel. Back then, all those years ago, when there was one people in the world speaking one language, the people built their tower to make a name for themselves. They were justifying themselves. Look at us, they were saying. Look what value we have. Look how great we are. Look what we can accomplish. Those stones, that tower, was their deeds of power. And God judged them. He saw their deeds, their pride, and showed their deeds of power to be pretty weak and scattered them. But now... On this day of Pentecost, all these different languages are back in one room and everyone can understand everyone else again. The judgment of Babel has been redeemed by the inrushing of the Holy Spirit. But what's the most important thing here? Is it the languages? Is it the togetherness again? No. The key here, of course, the actual source of the good news is what the disciples are saying is what the people are hearing. These disciples, these men just filled with the Holy Spirit are speaking about God's deeds of power. 
Notice the symmetry here. Babel was about humankind's failed deeds of power. Pentecost is about the announcement that God has accomplished something by his deeds of power. And what are these deeds of power that the disciples are proclaiming? Well, nothing other than the most recent deeds of power, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's own son, our Savior. So after the first work of the Spirit, convicting us of our guilt, we find that the Holy Spirit also fills us, the guilty ones, and comes out of us in literally uncontrollable ways, proclaiming the redeeming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are guilty disciples, and yet we are used to proclaim his good news. We who are split apart by sin, are reconnected, redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here we have the counterintuitive thing. What's the answer to a fractured world? The solution to a situation in which no one can understand each other. It's the release of the Holy Spirit by the proclamation of the gospel. It's the announcement that despite our surface differences, our many tongues, tribes, and nations, we are all equally guilty of sin, all equally in need of a Savior, and all equal recipients of that Savior's gracious, saving work. It's the announcement that in this way, at the foot of the cross, we are all the same. One last thing. When St. Paul writes about the Spirit in his second letter to the Corinthians, he says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The spirit finally is our guarantee. We here in this place are groaning, longing to be in our heavenly home, but not able to be there yet. And because of this place, because of this life and all the different languages we speak, how divided we consider ourselves to be, it's easy to forget that promise. We forget that God can and has redeemed things like Babel, that it is already done. We still feel far flung. And alone. We still hear many languages that we don't understand. Can it really be true, we think, that all of this will be swallowed up? Is it really true that it's already true? That we are already redeemed in Christ? And Paul says, yes, it is true. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, as a 
guarantee of the truth of what is to come. Remember what Jesus said when he started talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here because Jesus ascended. The Holy Spirit is here because Jesus was raised. It's the empty tomb that makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. After convicting us of our sin and driving us to our knees, drawing that choked cry from our throats, Jesus, save me, the Spirit guarantees that that salvation has been accomplished. You feel alone? The tomb was empty. You feel too sinful? The tomb was empty. All of our doubts, all of our fears, all of our self-righteousness, all of it, all our sin is answered by those four words. The tomb was empty. The Holy Spirit is God keeping his promise to be with us even to the end of the age. So, the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. The gavel has come down and you are guilty. But the Spirit isn't done with you yet. He fills you up. He is for you and with you. You are now a first person witness to the good news about Jesus Christ. And because it's objective good news about Christ, the tomb was empty and the work is done the Holy Spirit is your guarantee that it's all really true. Christ's righteousness is yours. Christ's goodness is yours. No matter who you are and no matter where you're from, every tongue, tribe, and nation, your sin atoned for, your life redeemed. On account of Christ. This is true today and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit for you. Amen.